Tuesday, March 23rd, and you're back on another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson, joined as always by Stephanie Steitzer-Holscher. Stephanie, how you doing? Doing well. Um, lots to get to over uh, a long weekend. Uh, the governor's uh, actually re- we're recording this at uh, just a little bit before three o'clock, uh, and uh, the governor's in the middle of his press conference, vetoing some more bills, signing some more bills. He actually just said, Stephanie, that he'll have more vetoes and bill signings dealing with education tomorrow. So I'm assuming that means he will attempt to veto the uh, the pension uh, reforms that were passed. Uh, but uh, we'll go through a couple of those vetoes today. And I guess we'll deal with the ones that come tomorrow on Thursdays. But let's get to uh, a whole host of news that we get to start with, Stephanie. I guess uh, let's at the top, let's start with one that's may not have been the biggest news item over the weekend statewide, but for listeners, of this podcast, I know you personally uh, was, was a, was a bigger news, news item is the passing of Al Smith. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Al's a longtime Dean of the Kentucky political press corps, a longtime host of comment on Kentucky uh, was a real mentor to many, many, many reporters, of the state. Uh, Stephanie, you've got uh, some thoughts you'd like to share on uh, the passing of Al Smith. Yeah, this one, um, this one was a, a really sad thing to wake up to Saturday morning. Um, Al Smith, you know, he was 94 years old. He actually started coming in Kentucky and it's the longest running program on KET. Um, a lot, most people remember him as a journalist and kind of, uh, you know, crotchety, but, but fun and funny um, host of coming in Kentucky, but he was so much more than that to Kentucky. Um, he wasn't even a native. He was um, originally uh, was born in Tennessee, spent some time as a child in Florida, ended up in Kentucky after um, his, um, you know, journey and struggles with alcoholism, um, got him uh, fired from some newspapers in New Orleans. He ended up at some small papers in Kentucky, he famously talks about it. it was the end of the road for him if he didn't, you know, put down the bottle and he did. And, um, I didn't know this. I was reading this was some of the stories, uh, obituaries about him. He actually um, wanted to buy the Russell paper. Um, the, the owner wouldn't sell it. So Al uh, got some money together and uh, started a competing newspaper. And uh, eventually he got ownership of the other newspaper as well. <laughs> um, but just, you know, and from a personal, I mean, I, I just can't think there's just nobody like him that I know that he's, he truly had an impact on so many people. And he was just such a kind person. Um, and he was just so fun and funny to be around. I mean, I absolutely loved, you know, going in to do comment on Kentucky. Uh, the show itself was fun and energizing and, um, but, but just more fun for me. And, and I think so many was, you know, being in the makeup room with him and just, talking and, and, and hearing his stories. And then he, you know, kind of famously would, uh, you know, invite all of the guests to go to dinner somewhere in Lexington, often, um, you know, Suggins, uh, afterwards to just, you know, hear his war stories. And he was such a, he was such an incredible storyteller. And, um, I, I just, after seeing all of the stories Saturday morning, I just, it was, it just hit me so hard. What a privilege I had um, you know, 15 years ago to be able to get to know him and be invited as a guest on comment with him. So, um, so that's that. And, um, he will be missed by so many people. 
And, you know, he, he's, I, I kind of got to where I am on the communication side and the, and the media relations side after he he'd kind of stepped back. So I, I didn't, I didn't know Al, it, I don't think at all, but, you know, talking to people who knew, who knew him well and reading, reading their uh, uh, memories. I know Al Cross had a great, uh, had a great kind of tribute to him up on his social media stuff. Uh, I know he's, he was extremely, extremely well loved by members of the press corps that, that worked with him both as a reporter and at, and at comment. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, happy, happy trails uh, and best wishes to, to the family of Alcross uh, who really, really did make a, a, an impact on the state and how uh, we talk about view and consume uh, uh, news and political news in the state. Uh Moving along, uh, Stephanie, you know, COVID numbers continue to drop, continue to get uh, a, a better, better day by day. Uh, vaccines get out. Plus, I think, you know, we're just uh, all the varying precautions eventually, you know, pay off, especially when you combine it with the vaccines and the, the numbers are dropping and looks like we're starting to get to where we can start to have a return to normal. Um, you know, live events been announced that are going to take place at Rupp. Uh, Regal Cinemas said, I think, starting April 2nd for the premiere of Godzilla versus King Kong, their their theaters will be open for the first time in almost a year. And uh, I know, at least in some of the more urban areas like Fayette County, uh, people 18 and up are going to be able to get the COVID vaccines. Yeah, um, a lot of good news, mostly good news here. I mean, the good news, uh, and I think, you know, we were discussing this at dinner last week, um, you know, bad news, good news. The bad news is, is there's uh, an uh, uncomfortably high number of Kentuckians who are declining the vaccine. Um, we can get into that maybe another time. But uh, as a result of that, uh, Fayette County Health Department announced this afternoon it is now opening up um, vaccines for Kentuckians, anybody 18 and over. Um, I mean, if you think about that, that was supposed to be like two months away. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in group three, technically speaking. And, you know, they only announced Kentucky was moving into the one C category, like what a week and a half ago. Yeah. Not very long ago. And so, um, and I, I sort of, you saw this coming, right? I mean, you saw a little trickles this and some of the more rural pockets where they may have higher numbers of people not um, wanting to take the vaccine. Ashland, Kentucky, a week ago, uh, was giving it out to 18-year-olds because they just couldn't find any more other folks to take it. So bad news, um, you know, for achieving herd immunity, really. Um, good news for anybody who wanted the vaccine in central Kentucky. Now it looks like you're going to be able to get it. Um, so I'm feeling pretty good about all of this. I mean, frankly, you know, having, having dinner with, uh, your, your esteemed, uh, physician wife and our physician and nurse friend the other day. Um, you know, even, yeah. I mean, I think the takeaway for us is COVID's not going anywhere. Right. And so yeah. for those folks who are, were hopeful that, and I don't know, I mean, I never saw this coming, but I think there are people who thought, okay, we get the vaccine, everybody, and then burn, it's just yeah, magically get, get the go vaccine, away. Get the vaccine, burn the mask. We're all good. But it's not, I mean, COVID's not going away. And I still see some people like kind of sitting in isolation, even with the vaccine. And it's like, 
I mean, you know, this isn't going away. This is going to be with us for a long, long time. Um, it's going to be like the flu. Our friends discussed the fact that it's likely to get um, possibly some of these variants are likely to get more contagious, but less fatal. Yes. So I think that we're moving into a phase with COVID where it's going to look and feel physically uh, and, and, you know, in other ways, more like the flu um, than what it has been of a, a dead, deadly pandemic that was crippling our healthcare system, burning out doctors and nurses. Um, so I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to move on um, and, and, cautiously, but yeah, you know, th- this one was so dangerous because it, it was, it, it was a novel coronavirus. It was something that we hadn't seen before, which means our body had both our body had no exposure to it. And, you know, the, the virus itself, uh, had, hadn't been out there you know so uh, keep in mind viruses are, are living living things and the last thing a virus wants to do is kill its host because that that kills that kills the virus so it's going to mutate um and, and like you said it's it's going to probably get less contagious or more contagious but less fatal over time don't don't I mean, don't, don't forget the common cold is technically a coronavirus you know, yeah. I, I, I was telling jokes last year when, when we didn't think it was gonna be this bad that, that I had a cold. And I said, I have I have a coronavirus, not the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's it, it, that that is a coronavirus has been around for hundreds of years that that gets perpetually weaker as we go on. It's still it's it's still around and it still moves pretty quickly from person to person. But you, know, you get the sniffles. It's I think it's this is going to land somewhere along the lines of of, you know, anywhere between the flu to to that. But. You, know, you also when you look at everything else go, going on, the other disease rates that that have fallen off the off the map this year. You know, I I, I wanted to stay on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and I thought people might might view it as an insensitive comment, but I, I'll go ahead and say it. Maybe, maybe all the Asian people that I used to make fun of in the airports, the masks, or you know, maybe they had the right idea because all these other viruses that you typically see spike during the winters. They, they ain't around and it's not because people are healthier. It's because they're taking precautions that stop those diseases from spreading. So, you know, I, I think that there's a good chance that you see, at least for uh, some percentage of the population, you see things like the, like the masks staying around, especially when you get into the winter months. Absolutely. I mean, you know, now there's some people who hated masks, only wore them because they had to wear them, put up a fight to wear them. Uh, they'll never put one on again unless they're forced to again. But I mean, I thought for me personally, you know, when I go into stores and the malls and, you know, busy, crowded um, places next winter, uh, I am absolutely going to mask up, uh, mask my kids up, um, because why not? Like, the fact that we didn't have the stomach virus swirling around in this house this year was a mega blessing. In I was going to say, do you, do, you, do you think I can mask up around my kids to prevent from getting the... The, oh. the scuzz they bring from 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 daycare and uh and, and elementary school absolutely <laughs> um so I'd, you know i'd be, looks I'd be like, all for that sorry boys daddy's gotta put his mask on <laughs> yeah but uh you know library lexington library's re- reopening um oh, crap. Does, that, does that mean i have to return my books or get fine and actually pay a fine I would probably assume so. Uh, looks like there's. I think we've had them since last November, like not 2020, but the one before that. There's going to be uh, some some proms and graduations. That just seems um, like a bad. I mean, some Miami had to declare a state of emergency because people were just going nuts down there on spring break, and it was it was too much. 
Yeah, well, I mean, but that doesn't mean there's going to be an outbreak. It got, I mean, it got just to be a massive number of people. But, yeah. you know, I'm kind of past the point of like, I'm past the point of caring that much about, you know, young people doing stuff like that. Like, I, I just don't care anymore. Like, yeah, the, I'm vaccinated. The, my loved ones are vaccinated. The education phase is over. Like, if, if, you, if you didn't get educated before, you're not going to get educated now. And look, I mean, and the numbers still bear it out that, you know, young people are less likely to to get severely ill from this. Um, the concern was always about them transmitting it to older and vulnerable people. As long as all the older and vulnerable people have had the opportunity to get vaccinated, then I don't really give a crap if a bunch of young people are going to go out and party. I mean, God, you know, we, we just all need to, to really just move on from that sort of judgmental, you know, it's just if you're afraid of it, get the vaccine. And, you know, let's just kind of kind of move on. And I'm, I'm happy for kids. I'm happy for seniors. I, I couldn't believe it today. I saw, you know, cars driving to kid, take my kids to school. And, you know, the people write on their kid's car, you know, senior year type stuff that happens. I'm just like, wow, you know, when you think about. Oh, I, th- I thought you were talking about old people. But. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about seniors in high school. You know, you think about like how much of how much they've been robbed of, you know, from experiences this year of not being in the school building until what, like a week ago in some places. Um, so I am very happy that um, those kids are at least going to get a prom and a graduation. And so. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll still be grumpy about teenagers doing dumb things but i just want to be like an old man shaking my fist in the lawn so that's that's, that's neither here nor there uh i guess let's go talk about miami let's stay national uh horrible news out of boulder uh shooting at a grocery store there left 10 dead including a police officer it sounds like the perpetrator may have been wounded the leg but is in uh custody you know just uh, horrible and, and not still not much information available on exactly what the hell is going on here. You know, uh, the one in the one in uh, Atlanta last week, it seemed like the shooter became very talkative once taken into custody. Um, it doesn't seem like there's much info coming out on this one at the moment, but. Uh, Can we just talk for a second about the fact that both of these um, white male shooters have made it out alive. A police officer is dead. And yet this shooter who is white made it out alive. And, you know, when the black community talks about the injustices uh, related to the justice system, this is one of the things they're talking about, right? Like, uh, remember that uh, kid that shot up the church, Dylan Roof? I mean, the cops took the kid to Burger King um, after the shooting. You know, it's just, how did these kids end up out of these mass shootings alive, taken now, into and it I, proves what, what I, it proves is that cops can do it. Well, cops I, I, was say, I, I was gonna say, you're, you're asking, I was gonna say, you're asking the wrong question there. Everybody should be being treated as, as these white guys are not. Yeah, I don't want those guys <laughs> to be shot dead necessarily. I mean, you know, I want I want specially heinous things to happen to them after they get you know a trial. That's what but, happens. That's, uh, that's what prisons for. Yeah. And no, I'm not going to go there. Uh, But, you know, it's this is what it demonstrates is that cops are capable of apprehending 
violent and dangerous suspects uh, without murdering them. So why does that seem to be an issue among black people? That's a problem I have. Moving on. Moving on again. Well, we we still there's a lot of we, we still don't know about that. We'll we'll see over the coming days what the exactly what the deal is. Um, vetoes. Uh, I'm gonna run through these real quick because, as we all know, I, with the with the exception of one that we'll talk about, uh, they're all gonna get overridden. Not not literally none of these are gonna are gonna stand. They're all gonna become law. Uh, but uh, Senate Bill 228 got vetoed yesterday. That is the uh, U.S. Senate um, vacancy filling bill. Uh, by the way, I love how Andy Bashir brought up. Uh, he, he talked about the Seventeenth Amendment uh, when uh, when vetoing it. Uh, to be perfectly honest, Governor, I'm for the repealing the Seventeenth Amendment, but that's an entirely different discussion that we could have on a podcast. My support for the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment. Um, I'm looking through the rest of them here. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Bill, House Bill 394, got vetoed. Uh, the a couple of different bills, uh, Senate Bill 63, which uh, would appoint a member, move the appointment of power members to the from the state agriculture board, from the governor to the ag commissioner, which kind of seems like it would make sense, but he vetoed it anyways. House Bill 274 replaces the governor on the state investment commission, uh, and and uh, I think it gives an extra appointment to the state treasurer, and then House Bill 518 which authorizes the ag commissioner, not the governor to appoint members uh, of the state fair board. You know, both of those bills, the two dealing with corals, again, this all goes back to the abject anger of the agriculture community at the governor for the dismissal of Warren Beeler. He brought all that stuff on, on himself. Um, all those bills will be overridden. Uh, vetoes be overridden rather. Uh, I have no concern about that. You have Senate bill 65 got vetoed today, which is the one with the, uh, uh, SNAP benefits if you're uh, being suspended if you're behind on child support payments. House Bill 312, which is uh, the open records bill. Uh, I, I would suspect both of those would be overridden. The one that's going to be dicier is House Bill 75, which is the education opportunity accounts. It, Steph, you pulled up the numbers. It only had like 48 or so votes in the House, right? 48, 48 to 47. So it, it's still a question whether that, that one. That's going to take some serious arm twisting to get to get that yep. one overridden. Um, the governor's already announced more, edu- what he says, education-related bill signings and vetoes tomorrow. I'm assuming one of those will be the uh, – the uh, uh, pension reforms for new uh, for new teacher hires, uh, although that one passed, I believe, with a pretty good margin. I think it should probably be able to be sustained as well. Uh, you know, I, part, part part of me wishes he'd just come out and unless he thinks there's a real chance to override, say, I'm not going to waste the taxpayer, taxpayer's money making these guys come back and do it. I know that they're going to override it, but here's the problems I have with the bills. He can still do his grandstanding and save everybody the effort of having to actually go through the process. But they'll get overridden, except for maybe House Bill 475. That one's going to have a tougher road. Uh, Stephanie, article, interesting article from the uh, Lexington Herald Leader about the Juvenile Justice Commissioner, uh, Lashana Harris. Mystery. And, you know, for the Bashir administration, even among press, among politicos, is uh, <laughs> and the Bashir administration has been, has been historically famous uh, for for being a leaky sieve when it comes to news stories. And the fact that ain't nothing coming out on this one uh, leads you to wonder, uh, does that mean it's way worse than we think it is? Or, or you know, it's, 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 it's a nothing burger, but uh, the, the state juvenile justice commissioner uh, who was appointed in December 2019 has been on an extended uh, leave during what they just have called an ongoing investigation. 
Uh, I'm trying to look down to see when exactly it was she got put on leave. Her salary is $115,000 a year. Uh, the the uh, state has not answered questions as to whether or not it's it's a paid leave, an unpaid leave, to how long she'll be on leave, or uh, if she is, you know, it, it, if she's going to come. It's it's a whole it's a whole mess. Uh, she's been on leave for for months. Uh, I mean, Stephanie, you're you're a reporter. What's your what's your reporter? Uh, what's your reporter Spidey sense is telling you? I don't know. I mean, like you said, I've not. People are not talking about this one. Um, you know, it could be is an issue with a facility. It's probably a personnel. It's probably related to, you know. I'm not. I'm not saying it, it would be sexual. It didn't have to be sexual in nature. It could. It just. My guess is it involves workers. Yeah, that's my. That's just a bold face, totally out of left field guess. Yeah, um, whether whether I mean it could be anything from, uh, you know, like I said, some sort of harassment, sexual uh, harassment, non sexual harassment, in, in, inappropriate political conduct. I mean, uh, uh, forcing people to come into work during the COVID. Yeah, God knows the number of things that could possibly be. Um, the, the only statement that they've made on the administration has made on it is uh, it's a matter being handled directly at the personnel cabinet and we will work to get a comment from those folks. And, and I mean, my hope is that it doesn't involve a scandal related to a juvenile justice facility, uh, because if it does, we better get some information and some facts about that uh, ASAP because yeah. the public has a right to know. And remember, this this is all taking place under the purview of uh, Mary Noble, former uh, Kentucky State Supreme Court Justice Mary Lexington whose cabinet is already under fire in a separate Herald Leader article uh, for uh, the uh, extremely high number of COVID deaths and infection rate among uh, prisoners at state-run prison facilities. Kentucky has reported, so far reported the, the second worst COVID-19 infection rates in the, uh, in the country per capita for state prisons. Um, and, and here's the thing, we've, we've known, I mean, one of the fir- very first big outbreaks we had was out in Lyon County back like last year. And guess what? They have another currently ongoing outbreak at the Lion County facility. And meanwhile, by the way, the, uh, the contract for prison health, prison healthcare uh, clinic contracts is up and there's some shenanigans going on that, which we might talk about in a future show. Like, so th- there's a, there's a lot going on in the justice cabinet that I don't think is getting appropriate sunlight shined on it. You know, if, if any reporters are listening, y'all might want to start lobbing some stuff in over there on, on any number of issues. I know uh, Chiefs had a good piece in the Herald Leader about the, the numbers. I know the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting is doing some stuff, but uh, there's, I think there's plenty of meat in the bone over there for uh, for any reporters who want to pry into what's going on uh, on a number of issues, the Justice Cabinet. Uh, moving right along. <laughs> Stephanie, an article that I sent you, which is, which is funny, but it's not. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the WLKY t- titled Mullet Debate, Kentucky... Uh, Kentucky high school or Kentucky school district tells baseball team to cut hair or sit out. Uh, so apparently players, some players on the Meade County high school team have grown mullets and uh, the school has told them that they have to cut their hair like old school, George Steinbrenner, Yankees style. Uh, they said that there's written rules for the Meade County baseball team during the season that state the players hair will be above the ears and no long hair on the neck. You know, again, th- this is, I thought we had settled this debate 
with George Steinbrenner and Don Mattingly in like the eighties, how, you know, and, and I know it's a, I, I can make fun of it, especially a being a white guy and B being a baseball player, but it, you know, it speaks to a larger issue. It's control of, of hairstylings, which I know we've, we've talked about in the podcast before when it comes to rules, especially because African-Americans and their hairstyles, that just these, these ridiculous rules on like, what, what, why, why the hell does it matter what a player's hair looks like? doesn't and it speaks to an even it speaks to that issue and it speaks to the issue that that schools and public schools really need to get um fixed on which is this you know not just policing it's it's policing all of it it's policing um attire uh you know there has long been a a problem uh with you know over policing what girls wear to school because it could you know provoke uh the unwanted attention from male students rather than addressing the male students behavior. Um, you know, schools have got to re-examine all of their policies related to, um, clothing and attire and hairstyles and, um, look at those as they relate to cultural appropriateness, well, that, gender, that's, that's the biggest equity. Problem is you could be trying to do things that you believe are well-intended, and just because because of your upbringing, your background, your knowledge base, you don't know that you're you're putting into a, a putting into place a rule that could be considered culturally insensitive. Well, you know, and honest to God, I mean, after the year that we have just had, after what we have put our kids through, they're in school. What a more damn swimsuit for all I care. Just look. I mean, the remote school. work non said. My God, this is where we're at now. I just <laughs> let it go. It's a mullet. <laughs> It's a mullet, fellas. It's a mullet. Hell, half half of the major leagues has mullets. Good God. Um, I would say something. Also, like half of Mead County probably has yeah, mullet. Uh, I don't know. You could just call them the fighting <laughs> mullets. Um, you know, it, <laughs> kind of staying on 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 sports. We didn't we didn't talk about this in the pre-show, but it, it kind of popped up on my Twitter during. Um, you know, Christy Nome has been kind of held up as is a like kind of a pro-Trump. Uh, right-wing potential contender for for uh, for president in 2024. And on Friday, she took an interesting step that she declined to sign a bill that would have banned transgender girls from participating in, uh, in, in women's high school sports. Uh, she said, unfortunately, I studied legislation confirmed legal experts over the past several days. I've become concerned that Bill's vague and overly broad language would have uh, would, could, could have sig- uh, significant unintended consequences. I'm also concerned that the, the approach the bill takes is unrealistic to the context of collegiate athletics. Um, so it, it's just interesting that you see you see Christy Nome, uh, who's kind of been a, become a champion uh, of, of the right for her refusal to go into lockdown and, and her support of Trump, that she's a uh, she's she's not signing the bill into in law um and yeah there's a there's an article for anybody anybody that knows me and knows that i love despite the fact it's uber 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 left wing i love mcsweeney's uh dot net funny <laughs> funny website they had a great piece up last week that it's just cut titled guys i swear i'm only transitioning so i can cheat at high school uh so i can cheat at girls sports uh, <laughs> i would encourage anybody who doesn't understand the situation fully to go to go read it because it's it's funny but it's also incredibly true. Like people, <laughs> the people that we're talking about here are not, it's not like out of a, out of like, you know, she's a man or some sort of like 1980s comedy. Like these are people who are actually taking very real and very life altering, you know, hormonal treatments and surgeries. And, and 
you're not doing that because you didn't make the varsity boys team and you want to play basketball and like, you know, be first team all state and, and, and girls basketball. Like that's, it's not what the situation is here. So, you know, regardless of the, the motivation, kudos to, uh, to Christy Nome for, for not signing that bill, which is an interesting step. Yeah. Apparently the right is getting very angry at her about it. Well, and speaking of um, gender and, and sports, I mean, how about the big NCAA dust up? Oh, God. The, uh, <laughs> the, the lack of parity with the, the workout equipment yeah. and the, the, swag bags. And the, women, the women's workout facilities looked like a holiday. It was one rack of weight. It, it was basically a, ho- a Holiday Inn Express like weight room. Worse. It was like one rack of weights. I saw a picture yeah. of and, it. And, and the, the, men, the, men's, the men's tournament had literally entire gyms transformed into giant socially distanced uh uh i'm talking basketball gyms not like workout gyms they they they, they transformed entire uh and entire gymnasiums into you know workout gyms that were socially distanced benches and stations and uh, yeah the, just insane the NCAA, NCAA has apologized profusely but yeah. i mean Fact of the matter is, there's they lost. no excuse for no, that. They, they lost. Uh, they, I mean, the excuse isn't is isn't a good one. It's probably the right one. Is we lost a billion dollars last year not having the men's tournament. That's really the only thing we care about right now. So let's stick it to the women. I'm not saying it was a it was, it's a good <laughs> excuse. I'm saying it's probably what what happened. Uh, I mean, I feel like this is probably a Title IX lawsuit. I pro- mean, probably. I, I don't I don't see how. <sighs> God. Um. Speaking of the NCAA tournament. Uh, if you fill out your brackets, you are probably with the rest of us uh, looking at complete and total chaos. Just to, you know, I think I said on the on the podcast last week that I thought either either Gonzaga, the number one team, was just going to run straight through, which they still may, they're still in it, or this is the year that like a twelve or thirteen seed was going to win the tournament, and that's looking like it's a possibility as well. Uh, yeah, everybody coming in said that the Big Ten was by far the best league and they were, you know, they, they were big 10 was going to be great. The big 12 was going to be great. And you know, those are the two that you really need to focus on. And uh, when you get down to it, I think the big 10 had like neither nine or 10 teams in and they got one left. Only Michigan is, is still standing and Ohio state got beat by oral Roberts. If you, if you're a religious school, Stephanie, very good time to be a religious school Oral Roberts on into the sweet 16 loyal Chicago with a uh, uh, sister Jean. 101 years beat, and who beat florida um that that was that was oral roberts that was i was like you said ohio state but i feel like well, they, they, only they, i only they, know this because they, we well, have they, a friend who's a florida fanatic they beat they beat ohio state in the first round in the 215 game and then they, and then they oh, okay, went on to beat okay. florida uh, oral roberts so people people don't know oral roberts has the nation's highest leading scorer and i actually sent a text to uh to group my best friends the day the brackets came out and said, I'm not saying bet on it, but I wouldn't put it past Oral Roberts to win that game because they had the nation's leading scorer and Ohio State can occasionally lay an egg. And when, when the game ended, I, I screen capped what I'd sent them that previous Sunday and sent it back to him. I was like, I told you, told you, told you this possibility. But uh, Lois Chicago, right. I, I just love a 101-year-old sister Jean vaccinated at the games with her rosary beads praying for Loyola Chicago. But I mean, you've got, I'm looking at it now, you've got a one, a five, a six, a seven, a one, a four, an 11, a two, a one, a five, a three, a 15, an eight, a 12, an 11, and a two. I mean, that, man, that Midwest is a mess. The two, the, the two is the, you got a two and eight and 11 and a 12 left in the Midwest. Uh, so it, it'll, it'll be, it'll be an interesting and different 
tournament uh the rest the rest of the way out i still think gonzaga wins they're just they're, they're the best team and a lot of the other teams have been taken out of ahead of them so uh uh i'm still i'm still picking gonzaga we'll see what happens uh Steffi, do you have anything else on the news front you wanted to, to touch on i don't think so um oh i did want uh, to note um Yay, Crescent Springs City Council, uh, the latest city in Kentucky to pass a fairness ordinance. So uh, kudos. I don't think there have been that many Northern Kentucky um, uh, cities that have done so. I know I know Covington did uh, a long time ago. Yeah, so. the, 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 one, the one liberal city up there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it's, you're going to end up seeing it. I, I, you know, it's what's funny is on that one is I, I don't even think the fight anymore is between, you know, gay rights and not gay rights. It's, well, aren't they already covered over under these other laws? You know, we talked about before that you can, depending on how you want to prosecute or, or, or read the books, you know, a lot of the stuff can be considered as, as, as covered under other anti, under other anti-discrimination laws. I think, you know, we're almost to a point now where that's, that's the debate now is not like, you know, should we or shouldn't we? It's well, don't we already have something that covers this? Uh, Looks like they were twentieth, or the, no, they became the twenty-first uh, Kentucky city to extend LGBT protections. And I was wrong. I'm so sorry, Northern Kentucky. I'm so sorry. There are actually um, seven, eight. Crescent Springs became the eighth city in Northern Kentucky. Uh, to do so, I am so very sorry to Northern Kentucky. I forget sometimes that your um, your uh, legislative representation isn't always reflective of your actual <laughs> actual uh, views. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come right back with Pam Thomas from uh, Kentucky Policy, and uh, I will say I will put my disclaimer on it that they are a Left-leaning think tank. They're not just tax policy experts, as I saw a couple a couple uh, news articles refer to them. Can they be both? Let me ask you. Can yeah, they well, yes, be yes. Both? You, you, you just need okay. to put the put put the put the word left-leaning in there, and you should do the same when you talk to Pegasus. And yeah, Pegasus. When they all they always make sure that they say right-leaning or Coke Coke affiliated or some sort of term that that in the reporter's mind is meant to demean. Should Bluegrass Pegasus Institute uh, introduce itself? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think any of these groups. If if you're if you're pushing yep. a particular policy agenda, and a reporter is writing a story using you as a policy expert, they shouldn't. They should. It is, it is incumbent upon the reporter to note your policy leaning in their piece, I think. And too often with tax policy, they don't, they don't do that. They, they, you know, Jason Bailey be quoted. It just says he's a tax policy expert. And, and no, he's a left. You could go, you, you know, you're not going to go quote somebody from Pegasus and have it, have it say just tax policy expert for the Pegasus Institute. It, it always says right leaning or Coke funded or some, something like that. Just, be fair be f- and make sure people fair know. enough sure that's people fair know. enough and i appreciate i do appreciate the uh the explanation there uh because i definitely think pam thomas is an expert on tax policy and kentucky budgets she she perhaps it's knows more cer- about kentucky budgets than anybody else in cer- certainly on the process that that can uh that is uh is, is not in question but uh, we'll be right back with uh, pam thomas to talk state budget uh, you're listening to Kentucky Politics Weekly. All right, we're back, and we're going to talk uh, Kentucky state budget. 
and uh, joining us, we have Pam Thomas. She's a senior fellow with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy down at Berea. Um, and she uh, previously worked uh, kind of all over state government in there, right, Pam, kind of helping craft budgets. Almost all of my time in state government was with the um, Legislative Research Commission, okay. Appropriations and Revenue Committee. But I spent a few years in the middle in the Justice Cabinet doing budget and strategic planning and also the juvenile justice. But that's it. Oh, interesting. Stuff going on in juvenile justice as well. We can talk about that a future time. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the. Well, let me let me let me start. Let me let me preface this whole conversation just so I, I can get this out of the way. You know, I once went with uh, Billy Harper to a to a uh, meeting with the Kentucky School Board Association when he was running for governor. And uh, we uh, kicked, off, kicked off a meeting and Billy said, you're not going to agree with me and I'm not going to agree with you. But if we go from there, I think we can have a great discussion. Uh, so I'll, I'll, get, I'll get the dirty part of the way, which is it really frustrates me. I sent Stephanie an article the other day, or she sent me an article about the budget and referred to uh, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy as a as, as a, like a tax policy expert or something like that. And I said, no, it's 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 a li- it's it's a liberal think tank. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's it is a it is a left leaning think tank that does economic work there's a there's a right-leaning one in kentucky the, the pegas institute that i'm friends with those guys that's fine be, be what you are but it really frustrates me with the media leaves off the, lib, the the liberal the left-leaning word but that's my little that's my little piece but we'll go for, we'll, we'll go from there you are a budget expert beyond just any any level of policy leaning um so let's uh i guess let's talk about um you know this is a weird budget year uh i mean have, have you ever had to go through a budget year like this where we've just got a one year and it's, I mean, everything about it is strange. Well, everything about it is strange. And I think it's unprecedented in a lot of ways. I mean, we did back in the last recession, get some federal funds, um, but the political, political makeup was different then. And the recession was different then. It wasn't a recession caused by a pandemic. And the, and the um, funds were different then because back then the funds almost all, almost exclusively came into the, to the state. Whereas now you've got you know, cities and counties and every, every little government's getting a check of some sort. And so it's hard to like budget, it's hard to figure out like all right, who needs the money because there's money coming in that you're not necessarily in control of where it's going. Well, and also the other thing about the way that money's coming in and all of the different pots is that a lot of the money that comes into individuals um, in various ways also impacts revenue estimates. And that's been almost impossible to do, which makes it really difficult to craft a budget if you can't really estimate your revenues. And then and, and that's different than just money coming directly from the federal government. It's what do people do with the money that's given to them and how does that affect our economy and our tax receipts? And I think what we saw in Kentucky surprisingly over the last year is the receipts have held up pretty well. Yeah, well, I, I think it's on the New York Times where like the fourth or fifth uh i think maybe the fourth or fifth lowest drop in uh kind of expected revenue well and one of the reasons that that happened is because the revenue estimates were reduced substantially at the end of last session in anticipation of so when you think about it it doesn't mean revenues are good it it means revenues weren't as bad as expected yeah Uh, uh, so that's not i mean it is a positive right because it's not worse than expected but what we expected was very very modest and so the fact that we're going to exceed that isn't necessarily something to you know be really really excited about we should be relieved but we shouldn't think that we're sort of on our way to recovery because we're not kind of on the on the federal money where this is something I was thinking about. We we have to be the first state trying to craft a budget with this, you know, 
after this federal money has come out, uh, don't, I mean, uh, there, there can't be many other states that craft a budget much sooner than 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 we're we're required to. Not necessarily by statute, but because of the hope, hopefully soon to be extinct sine die clause in the in the General Assembly. I mean, what how how do we, how do we fare just uh, kind of structurally versus other states as far as uh, dirt. You know, during during the year during session, us having to craft our budgets. I feel I feel like we've we've got to be the first state wading into this to have to craft a budget considering this money. No, I don't. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think states have different term term lengths and amount of time they're in session and amount of time they're not in session. But I think there are several states. A lot of states are on the same schedule. Um, so a lot of states are kind of where we are. The fact we're doing this in our short year session is truly yeah. unique, I think. Um, in a regular budget session when it's 60 days, that's kind of more normal for what a lot of states have. But this right now, no, you're right, because it's a short year session. Was, was that 05 the last time we had to do this? Um, you know, I don't remember. There have been two times in the past Um one because the general one time the general assembly didn't enact a budget and another time the governor vetoed it. I, so I, I think the not enacting was 05 because I, I was a I was a uh, or sorry be oh yeah 05 because I, I was a uh, I was orders of the day and rules clerk for the senate that year and I, and I know they had to get a budget through that year um, and, I, and I think it was because they couldn't come to an agreement the year before. Right. Yeah. And then and then there was, you know, the then there was the executive branch plan and the Fletcher yeah. Stumbo law, lawsuit and all of that stuff. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, kind of, you know, we've got everything. I mean, that's kind of the playing field that we're playing with. I can tell you, I, I talked to a couple of legislators uh, in the last week um, expressing some varying frustrations with a number of portions of the session. But, you know, one thing that I did tell them, I know Steph, Stephanie's I think in some level of disagreement with me is, you know, the Kentucky thing for us to have done would have been to budget all this federal money in and spend it all in this budget. Like that would have been the Kentucky thing that we always do. We get money in and it goes, it goes right back out. And I, I told most of these guys, you know, I've kind of was happy with their restraint because, because, because the way the money's being distributed from the federal level, where there's, there's state money and there's County money and there's city money. And, you know, when we have so many needs and all these different things, you know, taking a step back and being able to say, all right, you know, how can we maximize this? Is there bigger stuff that we can do to, to, to fuse the money, you know, to, to, to bring in state city and local or, and, and, and uh, uh, county money and, and do, do bigger things. You know, I, 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 I like the idea. Now that's contingent upon them actually doing that and taking the time to spend the money thoughtfully, uh, you know, assuming that that is what ends up happening. You know, what, what are your thoughts on, on the budget process uh, and specifically in regards to kind of delaying the spending of some of that, uh, some of that federal money. Well, let's talk a minute about the rainy day fund and the proposal for that. So the purpose of the rainy day fund is, you know, to help during times when your receipts are down. And right now the rainy day fund has a balance of about $466 million, which is higher than it's been in a long time. Yep. The legislature is proposing adding 134 million this year, 609 million next year, which is gonna put us over a billion. The target on the rainy day fund is about 6% and that would put us at about 10%. Now what the General Assembly has done this session, if all things end up passing, is about, you know, up to upwards of $700 million in tax cuts. So, you know, the thing about the federal money that you mentioned is it's one-time money. And so the smart 
person in a budget year would, would not want to spend that money on recurring expenses. You, you do it on infrastructure, you do it on shoring up um, broadband, you do it on trying to accommodate the things that you have to accommodate in public buildings, you do it on helping COVID relief responses and things like that. Um, putting it all in the rainy day fund. Now it's true that the money you have until 2000 and, uh, or 2024 to spend it. And so you're right, it might not make sense to spend it all right now, but it also doesn't make sense to put most of it in the rainy day fund right now either uh, when you have clear needs in the state. And you know, there seems to be a disconnect with the tax cuts. Um, and, and, and I mean, and I think a lot of what you hear from people is, well, we've got all this federal money so you can do tax cuts. Well, those aren't, trade-offs. <laughs> in, in, fact, in fact, they're specifically limited to not funding because, you know, because there's uh, penalties. One, one, yeah, one. There, there are penalties. But the question is going to be when you think about money and the fungibility of money, how yeah. is that going to be enforced? Right. Well, and, that, and that's that's what I told Stephanie is, you know, the, the joke when I was at RPK that I always used to say is that Steve Bashir needed a needed a Las Vegas stage show oh. because his, his sleight of hand magic with the budget of, oh, no, look, we're balanced. See, you know, money goes every, every single every single <laughs> governor has done yeah. that. It's not Steve Bashir. Well, it's he, also he, Ernie he, Fletcher. It's he, also Matt Bevin. I mean, I've been but, in it. For 20 she, years she, she, she and every and, and anyway, the governor yeah. doesn't do the budget. The legislature yeah. does. The but governor I, proposes. I, I, I mean, the way that the money moved during the because of the recession and the way that polls had to get patched from like 08, 09, 10 or around that area, you know, it, it was. It, yeah, you, they're, they're, every governor plays funny plays funny games with the numbers and oh look it's balanced <laughs> and you can make and, and, that, and that is not honestly it's not a party thing no. it's a way i mean essentially there's this aversion to taxes in kentucky and it spans across both parties mm-hmm. and you know the prevalent message in kentucky is that taxes are bad, bad. revenue is bad we, we don't want to do it unless someone legally makes us do it, as opposed to a message of how do we get the money to do the things you want? How do we pave the roads? There's also that's not just schools? Kentucky. I mean, for the most part, that is a, a national trend that I, I, I we could have a whole political conversation on my my beef with the liberals and Democrats messaging over a couple of decades on, on playing right into that message. But Pam, I mean, what... Uh, you know, what would be an efficient way? I mean, this is almost unprecedented in modern history, the amount of federal money that's about to just, you know, flood the state. What would be a way um, for the state to spend that money efficiently, effectively on one-time projects? I mean, are there enough shovel-ready projects? Could we, would, would it be done, you know, through block grants to I don't know, add districts. What what would be, if you were in charge, the best, because you know so much about the process, the best way to spend this money? Well, there are limitations on what the money can be spent on. I mean, you can't just go and build a whole bunch of stuff because you've got it shovel ready. You know, I mean, the first line right now, I think, is to look at the people in Kentucky and the businesses in Kentucky that are really hurting and target support for them. Now, some of the things that were done during the session, um, like tax cuts and all of that, are not really at all targeted, and they're not going to help the businesses that need it the most, because in order to have a tax liability, you have to have, a, you know, you have, in order to take advantage of a tax credit, you got to have a tax liability, and you don't have a tax liability if you're not profitable. So to target it to the businesses and sectors that are hurt and the people that are hurt. And, you know, we've talked about and heard about eviction moratoriums and people that can't afford their rent and that's legitimate, but then you've also got landlords who are, you know, who need the rent in order to pay their mortgages. 
So you've got two sides to these equations and both of those people are hurting and they both deserve relief. And so if you've got this one time money in this one time situation, figure out how to help those people move forward so that they can come out of this. And then the other thing is that you've got money for things like water and sewer projects, which are sorely needed in parts of Kentucky. You've got money for broadband, which this has demonstrated more than anything else, the, the need to do that. And now there are resources to do it. And then you've got money that you can use also to shore up some of these school buildings that are crumbling because that's a permitted use with some of this money. So even though that's not necessarily COVID related, you know, the thing that always falls when you don't have sufficient revenue in state government um, is infrastructure, is the maintenance, the things that you have to do. And I don't know if you guys want to talk about the road fund, but it's in horrible shape. Yeah, yeah. And- we, 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 we talked uh, talk about that nearly every episode. And I know Can some uh, of the federal money be used on that. No, no. no. People like Damon Thayer are getting sick of hearing me say, stop talking about raising gas taxes and talk about, use the, use the phrase modernizing the road funding formula. I think people are going to start shooting themselves if I talk about it more. But. <laughs> but I mean, it's truly in really, really bad shape. And yes. if you look at what's happening to the that infrastructure in Kentucky, it falls further and further behind every single year. You know, the federal gas, gas tax hasn't been raised in what, 26 years? Kentucky's gas tax hasn't been raised, Trey. You probably, if you talk about it all the time, I'm betting you know that. But in any event, yeah. Yeah, the resources at the federal level are are not increasing, and and the state level are are diminishing. I, you know, I, and you I, can I, tie that back to one session and two specific actions that happened in that session, and ever since then, it's been flat. I mean, I would say we're 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 still operating on a gas tax formula that was passed in 1980, assuming cars get 10 miles to the gallon, and it, it, it doesn't work in current terms. Um, you know, Tim, look, do you have any? Sorry, Trey. I was going to say, talking about the school funding, you know, I know, and I was actually looking for the link and uh, I had to go back to the email because I know I sent it to a few people, but, you know, I know that there was a, there was a pretty sizable chunk of money that was appropriated to schools and, and it was done based like a, a plan had to be submitted and then uh, it, it got funding back. Uh, through, Are through you the, talking about the federal money? Yeah, federal money, through the CARES Act for, for, for schools last fall. And I know a bunch of that money hadn't been spent. I mean, when you kind of, when you kind of look at needs for schools that, that uh, you know, are hanging out there, you take into account that money that that still has not been appropriated, uh, kind of kind of into that because I know that that's money that specifically had had to go to schools and it's still kind of sitting in a pot. I mean, you know what what because that's the confusing thing about all this money through through COVID is that there's been what three different relief packs, right? But only two that have state government direct aid in them. Yeah, well, but some but some of them are 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 direct to other things. Like I know, I know that the, the CARES Act has direct money specifically to schools and if i could find the spreadsheet uh, to see if they've updated it because as of stephanie if you recall uh I, I guess tom was still on with us last year uh kentucky had only spent like i think eight percent of that money uh the rest of it was still sitting in a, in a pot but i you know it had all been kind of budgeted but it hadn't been spent yet so when we talk about you know school money are you are you looking at looking at that too or just the money that's coming in with the with the the newest bill well, I think, you know, it's interesting because there there are some there is some language and I think you need to look at all of it. And, and with the newest bill, Kentucky's going to get about two billion dollars in the education money. And there is some controversy right now or a little bit of debate right now with regard to some of the restrictive language that the legislature has in the budget um, that doesn't allow the governor to spend the money that comes from the uh, the latest uh round of relief funding unless it's been appropriated. Well, with the school money, 
it doesn't go directly to the schools. It does flow through KDE, but then they're mandated by the federal law to get it out to the schools within 60 days. Um, and so there's a question about whether the limitation in the budget language uh, is going to in any way impede that or create issues with regard to that federal requirement. I mean, you know, and that's a legal interpretation and I'm not sure what's gonna happen around all of that, but, um, but yeah, and the, 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 the expenditures this time for education are much broader. I mean, they can pretty much use the money to help them with anything that they need help with. So, you know, it's gonna be a good way, I think, for school districts to catch up on some things and to, uh, you know, help their students with regard to access and other sorts of things and be better able to offer alternative methods for education and, and do a lot of things that they just really haven't been able to do. You know, one, one thing I've heard from, heard from, yeah, I can't talk, heard from some folks in the business community is that, uh, you know, you've got people who uh, are who are working from home, who may still not be back to work uh, necessarily full time, um, whose entire industries are, are going through a sea change because of the pandemic and just what will be changing business models afterwards. You know, I, I've heard, heard a lot of people from the business community saying that they, we should be spending this money on, you know, take the opportunity now to start with some, 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 a real investment in the job retraining and, and, and workforce development on, um, uh, you know, truly getting us to a 21st century workforce. You know, what, what do you, what do you think of, of, of that idea come out of kind of those, those circles? I think there's a pretty good emphasis on it right now and money being devoted to it within the Commonwealth. I mean, if you look at all the ways that money money is being spent in the way that in the budget they're devoting a lot of the sort of the keys money and the other money that go for scholarships and to support retraining and education through, through the lottery. And they're expanding the group of people that qualify for that to yeah. not just keep, you know. So I think that there's a lot of that going on and I think that there will be more of that going on. Um, and so I do think that that effort is continuing. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't really like using the tax code as a way to discourage or encourage certain behaviors um, because inevitably it ends up being unequal footing. I mean, I don't really like economic development incentive programs because you have two businesses that operate essentially the same sort of thing. One of them has just moved in. One of them has been here for a while and this one's getting all these economic developments and, and it creates an uneven playing field. Plus it erodes our tax base. Yeah. So, you know, I think everybody would prefer to have a broader base with a lower rate that's fairer to everybody. That's what that's the seven I always <laughs> say is, is every time, you, every time you give a tax break to somebody, it's an admission that your tax code's not working right. <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, the other thing about it is that every time you give one person a break, someone else has to pay if you assume that you want that you need the revenues that you have. Right? And eventually that break sunsets and you're held hostage. Do you, do you give them more or do they pick up and go shopping? Um, I, 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 are, we, are we are we at a point? I mean, is this this the 700 million in the tax breaks that have been um, factored in the session? Uh, is this worse in your opinion than in, in recent sessions? Does it, does it rival other recent sessions? And, and do you care to venture why it's gone kind of amok this session? Well, the process has changed a lot in the last few sessions with regard to the passage of tax changes in that they've happened late in the session, usually in, at the part of the procedure where they're in conference committee or in the last house and significant changes are made that create tax breaks and their proposals. It used to be that it might be there was a proposal to do something 
in a bill that just didn't move, but it was filed as a bill and people could see it. And then it got added at something. What started happening the last few years is that you have these brand new proposals that haven't been discussed anywhere that do major sea changes like the bank franchise tax. Um, I mean, rumors were out there. We knew it was coming. We heard people talking about it. I asked repeatedly to see the language and it just appeared in a free conference committee. Okay. And so, you know, that in my, in my, whether you agree with that or not, the fact that it doesn't get the public vetting means that it's probably not, it's probably going to have problems because the public vetting helps to make stuff better. Even if it's not a policy you agree with, people challenging you and asking questions. It's a perfect example is the one that was added by the Senate, the work at home credit. You know? I was going to ask you about that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's think about that right now. There is no requirement that you work a certain number of hours. There's no tie in the income that you earn from this out-of-state business and the amount of credit you get. So you could work five hours for an out-of-state business and then work full-time for an in Kentucky in, in business in Kentucky, the way it's worded right now, and get a $5,000 tax credit. Can this be applied to um, contract workers? Uh, well, the wording isn't exactly clear, but I think you have to be an employee. But the way that it's worded, see, and this is the other thing, when people are drafting bills at the last minute in the dark of the night, a lot of these things fall through the cracks. And so there are parts of it where I would say it has to be an employee and another part that says, no, I think you could be an independent contractor. So it's not clear. But these are the kinds of things that happen when you do stuff in the regular process that the questions get raised. Well, and the other thing that happens, I think, to your point is unintended consequences are not discussed and talked about and vetted, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I can't imagine that this is something that's particularly helpful when it comes to recruiting businesses to Kentucky, right? I mean, if I've got, um, you know, two choices, three choices as, as a state, um, this, this is gonna help me recruit workers as, as an employer, uh, maybe Indiana or, Tennessee is giving me a better deal on these X, Y, and Z pieces of it. So now you've actually just disincentivized a company from locating in here. Right? Well, either that or you've incentivized them to go ahead and create an office in Indiana where the only purpose of that office is to hire these people. So these people are, yeah. are employees of this Indiana company, but they actually do all their work for this Kentucky company. And there's no prohibition against that. And that, that's what I think would happen. But yeah, I think I, I think it, it also shows how out of balance our our entire tax system is that we're willing to we're willing to go to extreme lengths in order to draw in extra payroll tax when payroll tax is not necessarily the best way to, to you know to, to fund your long term function of government because you know talking to people I, I think the goal was well you, we can get these people that are going to start working remote that are making big money. I mean, if we can get them to work remote out of Kentucky, then we can get the payroll tax because they're working here. So we'll give them a little bit of a tax break to get them here. Well, we shouldn't be relying that heavily on payroll taxes to start with. Well, when you, I mean, I know that's one you and I are going to disagree on, Trey, but I think that when you look at, I think tax structures need to be, you've heard of the three-legged stool probably, right? Yeah. And they, they react differently uh, to different things in the economy. And you need to have excise taxes and you need to have, uh, income taxes and you need to have property taxes because they all do and, and they tend to prop you up. And one of the reasons Kentucky has done so well in comparison to a lot of states is in fact because we have an income tax, because we've done so much better than the states that rely more on excise taxes. I mean, the, the two things that have propped up our tax bases during this recession have been the fact that UI benefits are subject to income tax and a lot of people in Kentucky got UI benefits 
that were higher than their salaries yes. because of the federal law. And so that propped that up. And then the other thing is the people who have resources and tend to travel and spend their money on things like that are just buying stuff. Uh-huh. And so when you look at what the leading edge indicators are in our sales tax, the two things you see are online purchases, which we tax in Kentucky. We were actually on the forefront of that. And our law is probably among the best in the nation on that. And their double digit uh, increases month over month, every, every wow. month since, I mean, in double digit. And then the other thing is the big boxes, which of course they were allowed to stay open as essential yep. businesses when the small businesses that were more sort of focused on individual things had to close, they have double digit growth. So with a combination of those two things, our sales tax has been high, our income tax has not fallen. It's starting to now, but but for an entire year. And, and you know, if Kentucky did not have both of those things, we would have been hurting right. a whole lot more. And so, um, you know, I understand the theories behind trying to switch one for the other, but systems that include both are going to be more sustainable over time. And that's, I mean, it's, it's yeah. true when you just look at the numbers. Pam, um, my last question before uh, we wrap up and I'm sure Trey has another question or so. I just tell me, tell me one thing we don't know that we should know about this budget situation. I think that we're in a unique situation where some really good, strong investments could be made for the people of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. If our leaders, uh, you know, could, could kind of have that as their focus (laughs) and work together to think about what those things would be. I mean, it's not, again, things that are going to sustain over time with regard to the money, but you can certainly do things that will sustain over time with the money. And that would be the best way, I think, long-term to benefit the people of Kentucky. Like I said, I'm I'm hopeful that the delay in the spending will result in, because I've I've talked to some people in a couple of different communities who are actually, who are looking at it right now, who are are looking at, all right, the city's getting this much, the county's getting this much, you know, we've got this thing that stretches over these two cities and and the county, maybe we can bring a little bit of state money in, and we can do a really big project that either we'd have to finance over a number of years, or we wouldn't be able to afford it all, you know, I think that there's some opportunities here, if Kentucky for once can get creative on spending and how they, how they coordinate monies. You know, we, we could get some, some big stuff done with this money that that's, that's long, long pending outstanding problems. Well, I think that, and again, I think it's very important to come back to the fact that there are just so many people in crisis right now. And honestly, what the general assembly has done so far has looked at the business sector and what it needs through the tax code and tax breaks, because every single tax break that's been enacted are for Mm -hmm. businesses. And there's been not a whole lot, like for right now, nobody has proposed, the federal government has exempted the first 10,200 received in unemployment from the federal income tax. There has not been a similar proposal in Kentucky yet, which is surprising. But I think that in order for the entire economy to be strong, that and, and that includes businesses and individuals, we also have to help individuals. And I know that there's a lot of help coming from the federal government, but the state and local governments have a better ability and opportunities to really understand you know, what needs to be done. And, and all of it needs to happen for the economy to work. You know, It can't just be one. By the way, well, cir- circling back, I did I did find that that uh, dashboard there. Uh, Kentucky got awarded one hundred ninety three million one hundred eighty six thousand eight hundred seventy four dollars in elementary sec- and secondary school emergency relief fund. Thus far, I've only spent forty three million of it. So there's there's st- still a big pot of money out there to spend on 
uh, from specifically from the elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund. So that's hopefully that'll make the other dollars stretch a little bit further because there's still a pot of cash out there for the for K through 12. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I think with all the schools opening back up, you're probably going to see an acceleration in that spending now. Uh, the, yeah, the, my understanding is the, all all the e, e, it's e, allocated. The, yeah, the ESSER money had had to be budgeted. It just hadn't been spent yet. Yeah, it had to be allocated by the end of December. I think there was an extension on that, but yeah. even still, it's been allocated. And I think that you're right with the ability to spend through 2024. Um, it makes sense to be intentional, right? And, you, you, and you, could, you could see what holes you're left with to, to plug right. in with that money because other monies from other areas such as the ESSER fund are, are going to be able to help you plug some holes and you can sit back in 2022 and say, all right, well, these holes are still here. Let's go plug them. And the danger is that you 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 don't pay attention to what it looks like without, co without the federal yeah. money. You know, that's the danger, I think, in all areas of budgeting in the state is that you have to be vigilant about that at the same time. Well, the good news is, uh, thanks to the way that we did the budgets over the last two years, guess what? We are uh, like uh, 10 months or so away from a, from a new budget bill being filed. That we are. <laughs> <laughs> that we are. Um, I'm trying to think if I've got any, any, any final questions. You know, it, it just, this budget seems to me, and, and tell me if you have a different, a different uh, perspective. It, it seems to me like this is kind of a treading water budget is, is we're, we're, we've at least gotten back up to the surface and we're bobbing around. And this is kind of the budget to, to get us through to, you know, cause not, not, I don't think, you know, there's a lot of changes that I know the Republicans would like to make and how the state's economy functions and, and, and what we do. I, I know at least some of the party would like to return to, uh, the work we started on on comprehensive tax reform. Uh, I know, I think everybody, including the governor, would like to take a look at, uh, like we talked about earlier, of uh, the road fund and, and how that functions. And But I think, you know, right now, the prudent thing probably is to wait to see because the experts say that the economy is going to come back. But the last thing you want to do is, you know, spend money that you expect to have if the economy bounces back and the economy doesn't continue on the, on the upper trajectory. But, you know, do you have a different view that this is kind of a, we're just kind of on a trading water budget uh, and, and next year is going to be the one to watch or, or do you think there's, you know, either a missed opportunity or gone too far or kind of what are your overall I, I think it's, I believe it's a missed opportunity if, if we just mm -hmm. stop right now. And, and the reason why is because we have several things identified that we know need to be done that I think everyone would agree need to be done and can be done. And there is no reason to have so much money in your budget reserve trust fund. And we didn't even get to talk about the UI loan and all of that. That's a whole other subject. But <laughs> you know, you have you have money to do some things. You know some things that need to be done. You can use one-time money for. You don't need this much to save for a rainy day. Um, and it's so still it's, raining right now. It's a missed opportunity <laughs> to not recognize that it is still raining and that there are valid things that could be done right now, um, you know, to accomplish things for Kentuckians. And I, so I do think that if they just tread water, it's a truly a missed opportunity. You know, I, I still hold out hope that that the delay and some of that and some of the spending is just so that we can we can coordinate and we, and we're all put, pushing the rock the same level. I, I think if, if that's not the case, yeah, there, I think that there's going to be some unhappiness and, and I'm going to be a little bit disappointed that we didn't accomplish something larger. You know, am I a huge fan of the bill that the federal government passed? No, I'm not. But, 
you know, I'm also not going to be one who say, well, I'm not going to spend that money on principal. The money's coming in the state. You know, we, if, if we have it to take advantage of, we need to take advantage of it. But I also don't want us to do what Kentucky normally does, which is spend like a drunken sailor once the check comes in. And I like the idea of being thoughtful and, <laughs> and, and uh, strategic with the spending. So, you know, I, I'm kind of given the, the, the budget and a, a grade of incomplete until I see what happens there. But uh, do you have any, any closing thoughts, Pam? Well, you know, I, I think the idea, and, and I, I actually worked one year um, when the Senate, uh, when the Republicans first took over the Senate, I worked for them that session <laughs> um, as partisan staff. Um, I didn't mention that earlier. And uh, <laughs> Senator Williams was really interested in performance-based budgeting yes. and looking at ways to tie spending to goals and, and outcomes. And, and, you know, I think that that's a lofty goal and it's a good thing to do. It's very difficult to do in a political environment because, uh, you know, you've got this constant tension. There are other, some, there are, are other states that do it, but, you know, we start in the middle when we, when we budget in Kentucky in that we have a, an amount of money and then we figure out what to spend instead of saying, these are the things that government should do and this is how much it costs to do those things. And we need to get the money to do that. We start in the middle. And so we never really get to the point where we define like what is a quality education system and what does it cost to provide it? What are, what is a good transportation infrastructure and what does it cost to do that? Um, you know, and I do think that people come along with their political leaders if their political leaders make a good case to them that, you know, this is what needs to happen in order for us to have the things that we agree we should have. And, and you know, so there is gonna be some tension and disagreement about what we should have, right? and what government should do and what government shouldn't do. But at some point, you, so we never have that conversation. Right. To me, that's one of the things I think that is a fatal flaw in the way that government works right now is that for whatever reason, we never talk about the top line and then approach it from that way. We talk about, well, we've got $11 billion to spend. What do we cut? Yeah. Oh well, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of band aids. A lot of band aids on a system that needs a lot of reform. And and it's a deficit way of thinking. It's not an assets way of thinking. So well, and on the tax breaks, you know, that's also super short sighted. I mean, they can go out and brag that they did all these great things for business, but you know, I, I remember decades ago, we've seen the report, study after study, shows that one of the best things you can do to recruit and retain um, businesses into your state is infrastructure. And, and have quality a good school of life, system. <laughs> infrastructure. I, yeah. I consider the schools a, a part of that, and quality of life. And you know, so fix the water, fix the sewer, fix the school buildings, and that's true sustainable economic development versus you know throwing millions of dollars at you know a hotel here and you know a business there. And I do think that political leaders could advocate for that. It would require a complete retooling of the current sort of way of thinking. But again, you know, when you talk about favoring businesses and making it a good business climate, people automatically go to taxes. Well, taxes are a very small part of any business's cost. You know, I mean, if they have affordable yeah. electricity, if the road system is good, if they can get good, reliable broadband, that's worth a lot more to them than if they're paying a little bit more in taxes. Yep. And, you know, but people don't ever sell it that way. They kind of oh. default to this, uh, you know, loser take all, economic development tax incentive thing. And, and it just makes no sense at all. Of course, businesses are gonna take it if you give it to them and they're gonna threaten you of not coming. But if you've got all that other stuff, you know, yep. anyway, that's just, uh, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the way I think about it is the approach is just a little bit wrong, regardless of what percent. you're in. 
Yep. Thousand percent. Like you can ask Stephanie. I I am I bang the drum harder than anybody else for a complete reworking of the gas tax. Modernization of the road funding formula to deal with the change in transportation since 1980 when Bruce Lunsford helped push through a new gas tax. Uh Pam Thomas, thank you for coming on with us today to for a quick for a quick budget discussion. We'll see. Sure. uh, Happy to be here. It was fun talking to y'all. Absolutely. And uh, as always, if you, you can get us uh, wherever you stream podcasts, if you get us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give us a review. And we'll be back at you on Thursday with another Kentucky Politics Weekly.